Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists, the podcast that tells you everything you need to know about working for yourself. I'm Lily Cantor, a freelance money, health and lifestyle journalist. And I'm Emma Wilkinson, a freelance journalist specialising in medicine and health. So last week our book came out. Freelancing for Journalists is now available. It's been a really exciting feeling to actually finally get our hands on this book that we spent the most part of last year writing. Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. I never thought I would be the author or in this case co-author of an actual book. So it feels quite surreal. Um, We've had lots of questions about this. So today we're going to talk about the process behind that. How did this come about and how to go about um, publishing a book? Yeah, so we should specify here that we are talking about non-fiction. So, fact books, how-to guides, a history of something, or a biography, for example. Um, We know nothing about writing novels, so while some of you may have dreams of doing this, we're going to leave that advice to some different people. Yeah, we have um, two fantastic guests today, uh, authors and journalists, who have lots of experience here, and we're going to bring them in shortly but first we thought we should outline how our book came to be because it's been a long time in the making. Yeah so um, just to kind of take you through really the genesis um, of our book um, because this goes back really to uh, September 2017. So I was at a conference, a journalism conference at the time um, And there was someone from Routledge there that was basically doing individual meetings with people, asking them if they had any ideas for books. Um, I met up with her and we kind of bounced around a few ideas. Um, And then I mentioned to her that I also worked as a freelance journalist. um, And she immediately kind of jumped on that and said, well, what we'd really like is a um, a book on freelancing. Um, Is that something you could do? And I sort of said, well, yeah, possibly. I'll, I'll have a think about it. So I went away and had a chat with Emma because she'd been freelancing for a lot longer than I had. Um, And yeah, we thought, yeah, why not? So the next month in October 2017, we approached Routledge again, um, said, you know, could we co-author this book? Um, What do we need to do next? Um, And they asked us to provide a very detailed proposal of the book. So what would be in each chapter? Um, And also we had to write a full sample chapter. So we spent quite a bit of time doing this. In in May 2018, we sent them this proposal and the sample chapter. So the proposal also had to include like who our competition was, what books were already out there, and also what kind of demand there might be for this book. So we had to put quite a bit of research into that. And I think the chapter we put together was about 5,000 words um and it included um a case study in it as well so we sent that all off um and then we got some initial feedback quite soon actually and they said they'd like to use it as part of a series they've got a series called media skills and they felt it would fit with that um, they've got other books like um, interviewing for journalists broadcast journalism um, as part of this the series they asked us to make some revisions to the proposal then it got sent out to reviewers um then july 2018 um nearly a year later from when we i had that first initial chat we got responses back from the reviewers and i think there was about 
five different reviewers um, and they were really positive and we just had to make some kind of minor tweaks to kind of the content and what we were going to include in the book. Um, we did that and then the next month in August the book went to the editorial board, they agreed it and then contracts were sent out to us. Um, and then we ba they basically said, when can you write this book for? So they asked us to set a deadline. So we were now kind of a year later, we're talking September 2018. Um, and we were kind of right, how long is this going to take to write? Um, so we basically gave ourselves just over a year. Um, we decided we were going to write it um, in uh, 2019. Um, because there were 12 chapters it fit quite well because we could do a chapter per month um, and so yeah we sort of gave ourselves the end of the year and then we would said we'd submit it in January 2020 because there's a lot of admin to do we had to do the index we had to do a list of all the figures all the photos sort of copyright get all the permissions and things like that um, so in January, we submitted that, and then there was a process sort of back and forth of edits, proofing, more proofing, um, and back and forth basically until a couple of months ago and when they said, right, it's going off to the printers. So that whole process has taken, um, it'll be nearly three years actually, by the time the book came out, it was, uh, yeah, three years in the making. And it's so strange when I look back at that timeline. Um, I mean, it took us a year to write the book because, let's not forget, we weren't paid for doing this other than a teeny, teeny advance that paid for about two hours of our time each, in theory. Um, and it's 90,000 word plus book, 12 chapters, case study in each, lots of research, talking to freelance journalists. And we both had full-time jobs while we were doing this. We were both freelancers and... Um, teaching at Sheffield Hallam University. So this kind of had to be done um, in our spare time. <laughs> and sometime we had to find time to do it. And it was a bit of a slog at times. Um, and we're gonna talk a bit in this episode about how to get through that as well. Yeah, but I think first we're gonna sort of start off as we normally do with our top tips. Um, you know, we're aware that there are a lot of freelance journalists out there that are interesting in publishing books, um, but perhaps don't, kind of know where to get started um, I think my tip really would be um, to be ready to kind of be in it for the long haul um, as journalists we're so used to quick kind of turnaround deadlines especially if you're writing news you might be doing stuff for that you know very day and even with features um, you know it might be for a publication that's three or four months away but compared to a book it, it's pretty rapid so just bear in mind that this is something that might take two or three years and you've got to be interested enough in it and committed enough to it um, to kind of be in it for that long period of time. Um, yeah my tips really related to that actually because it is a really different beast to writing kind of news and features and it can be a bit overwhelming when you think how many words you have to do and how long it is and um, we found it really helpful to set mini deadlines as we went along it was roughly kind of a chapter a month each um, we had a google doc tracking our progress so we knew we were on track and for me it seemed much more manageable that way i found I couldn't time-wise dedicate a whole, even a whole day a week to it because of the nature of my other work. So even booking just half a day to work on it 
so kind of drawing up that timetable that really helped because it didn't feel like such a big project in my head yeah so I mean that's very much our experience of um writing an academic textbook but our guests um have both written different kind of um non-fiction books so um we're gonna go over to them now so first we've got Michelle Rawlings hi Michelle hi thank you for having me um, so Michelle spent 25 years as a freelance journalist working for national newspapers and women's magazines before taking a teaching post at the University of Sheffield. She's ghosted a book in 2018, a true story called A Friend for Christmas. And in June this year, her non-fiction book, Women of Steel, was published by Headline, focusing on the feisty female workers who took on arduous and dangerous roles in the Sheffield Steelworks during World War II. So we're really pleased to have you on the podcast today, Michelle. Thank you, it's great to be here. Um, and we also have Francis Frank uh, Shannon. Hi, Frank. Hi there. Um, an award-winning business and financial freelance journalist. He's the author of two commercially published non-fiction books, one which was later re-released as a self-published book and a ghostwriter of five others. Um, he's a law graduate and former university lecturer. He runs courses for NUJ Scotland on freelancing and law for journalists. Um, so thanks for joining us today, Frank. Okay, good to be here. So, Michelle, before you take us through how uh, Women in Steel came about, can you tell us what your top tip for getting published is? Well, I think you need to research your agent. So find an agent that's really interested in what you're talking about and believes in what you can do. So I think your relationship with your agent is really important if you go down the agent route, which I did with my second book. And I had to sort of know that whoever I worked with really was passionate about what I was doing and would support me and would get me the best publishing deal possible. You can do it without an agent and um, I did my first book without an agent but they really do help when it comes to contracts and acting as the middleman between yourself and the publishers. Um, I've always been very lucky with the publishers I've worked with, we've never had to have any tricky conversations but if there was a tricky conversation it wouldn't be me that was left to do it, it would be my agent and I think that is can be invaluable at times. Um, Frank, what about you? You've done kind of self-publishing and the publishing route. So what would be your top piece of advice for someone who doesn't know anything about publishing a book? Um, study the market um, and find a good story. Uh, the advantage that journalists have is they can produce work quickly, uh, which means they can uh, capitalise on a story that's in news. <clears throat> in my case, the second book I did, um, was basically a follow-up to news stories I had done. And then I had access to a lot of inside information which I used um, to then write the book. I actually, um, it was actually wrote mine in a month, um, which was a lot of work and I was doing 22, um, 22 hour days um, to get it done in time. But the pressure was there because the story was in the news and there's a real demand for it. Yeah, that's really interesting that you're able to turn that around really quickly. And I, I think our, our experience is academic, which tends to be kind of slower process. Um, yeah, it's interesting to hear that, that you were able to do that so quickly. I wonder if, Michelle, if we, we could 
go to you really and, and ask a bit more about kind of how how your book came about because obviously you've got this really strong story and, and anyone who lives in Sheffield will know about the statue outside City Hall um, but kind of how how did you sort of I know get to the point where you thought right I, I want to write a book about this I well I'd followed like most people in Sheffield the Women of Steel campaign which was covered by the Sheffield Star in great detail because they led the campaign. So I'd watched the campaign develop, I'd watched the fundraising happen for the statue that was finally uncovered in June 2016. And I say it was about two years later, there was another article in the Sheffield Star about the Women of Steel. And I just sort of did a quick Google really to see if there had been a book written about them because you know, the land girls that had books written about them. And I just assumed there would be one in there. And I was just quite interested in reading it more than anything else. And when I did some Googling um, and spoke to my agent, we just couldn't find one. And it, so there was the seed that developed that I just thought, well, I, I'm going to try and write one then. So I started my research, like all journalists do, um, spoke to dozens and dozens of people to formulate the book synopsis and to pitch it to publishers. So I reckon the research probably took me a good year at, at that stage. Um, and then we, we pitched it to the publishers and thankfully very quickly I got quite a good publishing deal. And then the writing began in, in earnest. And as you know, you're, you're then on another deadline, which is fine because as a journalist, we work really well to deadlines. And I think I had about six or seven months to turn turn all my research into 80,000 words. Yeah, I mean, how did you, I, because ours was kind of um, broken into distinct chapters almost, you could approach it like um, kind of a, just writing on one topic and then put that to one side and write another. I, I guess your experience was a bit different to that. Did you have any little tricks for keeping motivated? Yeah, it, it was slightly different and I approached it in a chronological form. So I started pre-war and then worked its way through. It didn't always work chronologically because there's chapters in the book about wartime romances and wartime weddings. So they could happen at any time in the war, which would obviously then have a conflict about keeping it chronological. So we then, when we got to, to actually submitting and talking to my editor, we decided how to break it all down so we would have the blitz we have two chapters on the Sheffield Blitz which don't necessarily fall in chronological order but they're very neatly put into compartments so that anyone opening the book could see straight away which section what part of the war or what aspect of the war or working in the factories we're talking about so you know there's a chapter just on how dangerous the factories were but these are all very human we're not just talking factual we've got lots of women who talked about their experiences so most chapters start with the dramatized scene sort of setting the scene for what's ahead in the chapter so actually it worked really well I didn't really struggle with the actual breaking down the information once we decided what each chapter would be about yeah and I guess that's key isn't it it's having that structure in place when you start makes it so much easier to just kind of get on with the writing because um, you've got then got kind of a formula to work to and and I wonder Frank if if just come over to you um, can you tell us then about how you um, kind of got got going in the first place and and the process 
process of, of getting yourself published? Uh, yeah, well, basically, I did everything the wrong way around. Um, what happened was the I'd been breaking the story, which the story was the uh, takeover of Celtic Football Club, which is which was a massive story in Scotland. Um, the club had a reputation for being impossible to take over because of its corporate structure. I'd been writing on business for a while, and, but also been writing on football finance. So I'd broken quite in, uh, a few stories. And then I got to know about the plan to take over the club. And I knew both sides. I knew the, uh, some of the existing directors and I knew some of the would-be new directors. Um, so uh, we broke the story um, in Scotland on Sunday, um, did that. And then afterwards, there's a tremendous demand for more information. So uh, we approached a publisher, quite a well-known one, uh, um, and sold them the idea and uh, went with that. As I say, there's a demand to get it done very quickly. So we, we got that out. My co collaborator had, had, had in fact planned the deal. So I had access to a lot of documents, emails, etc. Um, we then wrote the book um, and it, it sold out fairly quickly. We did get an advance. Um, because my law degree, it helped that, for instance, I rewrote the contract. The various, the, the various bits and pieces in the contract I didn't like. And I told them they'd have to change it, and they, they did. So that wasn't too much of a problem. Um, the, the book sold out very quickly. It was serialized in the Herald. Um, there was a lot of interest in it. Um, and then it went out of print. The... We then found out that back copies of the book were changing hands online for 60 and 70 pounds a time. This is a book that had been published at I think 8.99. So we thought, that's crazy. We're not getting any of this money. So we decided to republish it ourselves. So we set up, I, you know, uh, rewrote the, the book, re, um, designed it, designed all the pages, designed the front cover and the back cover and wrote the blurb. We bought pictures from some newspapers uh, to use in it um, and went to uh, a print-on-demand company, uh, ordered a thousand copies, um, set up a website and sold it online. We actually sold it in uh, shops. Uh, uh, Celtic shops insisted on taking 60% of the cover price. Um, the uh, Amazon insisted on taking a far more reasonable uh, percentage. And then of course on our own website, um, we got 100% of the price. So the book paid for itself in uh, probably six months, I think, and, and, went, and went into profit in that time. And then since then, we're now into a third edition. Um, the, way, the reason I say I did it the wrong way around is I did a hard copy book first, then we did an ebook. And I'm still getting small checks every quarter from uh, Kindle and Amazon for uh, for the ebook. And did you find, um, because then, as I understand it, you then went on to do other books. So did you find that once you had that experience, that made it easier to get, um, you know, further deals or just to kind of know how the process worked? And Well, I didn't, I, I didn't self-publish any um 
other books beyond that, at least not yet. Um, I then actually did get some contract work from a, um, a business publisher and I, I ghost wrote uh, five books for them, um, which was great because I was actually, you know, um, I knew they, they actually published the books themselves, but I understood the, the, the process pretty well by then. Um, so I was able to, you know, to do exactly what they wanted in that situation. That was just for a sort of flat fee in each case. Um, one, <laughs> one tip I would say is never let them know how long it takes you to do the work because they're all commercially minded. So they, you know, um, we hummed and hard about a fee and we said, well, how much is it, you know, um, and we agreed a fee. Um, but I didn't let them know how long it took me to do the work because I'm pretty sure if they knew how fast I could work, they would have cut the fee. And, and that's one of my um, tips, whether it's freelancing as a journalist or freelancing as an author is, never let them know uh, how much work's involved because they'll try and cut the fee. Um, I actually, uh, on that, I was once asked by the Scotsman to do a, uh, a piece um, on corporate finance and I said, no. I said, why not? So it's going to take me three days. You're not going to pay me for three days' work. You're just going to pay. I, I knew what the fee would be. Um, so the answer is no. I said, I said, but tell you, why don't we do this? Why, instead of doing a whole review of corporate finance, why don't we look at one particular kind of deal that has really come to the rise? Uh, they said, yeah, that sounds really good. Let's do that. I didn't tell them I had already written this for another magazine. So all I had to do was to rewrite it. All the research was done. Um, and so I did it, and then I sat in it for three days. There's no way I'm going to tell them it took me half a day to do it, or else, as I say, they would have cut the fee. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good tip, actually. And repurposing is something we've talked about before. Um, it's something I did quite a lot with, with my pe features as well, is kind of getting as many bites of the cherry um, mm -hmm. idea as possible. I just want to pick up on, on something you said there and, and kind of put it to Michelle, because you were talking about ghostwriting and Michelle, you've um, ghostwritten as well. I mean, how do, does someone get into that in the first place? Well, I think I, I was quite fortunate. I think like most journalists, it's, it's probably who you know and the conversations you have with people. So I was introduced to ghostwriting through a friend of mine who had done some work for Penguin and they, she did me a mutual email introducing me to one of the editors at Penguin who asked me for some ideas. And it was quite funny because I sent, I sent a whole list of ideas of sort of the biggest stories I'd covered that I felt could reach to 80,000 words. And then I'd put a little paragraph at the bottom about a lady I'd interviewed who helped the lonely of Sheffield and puts on a Christmas lunch every year. And I literally must have put a sentence or two about this particular story. And it was that one that they took. So the commission came from a tiny sentence at the bottom of an email when I put a lot more detail into the other stories that I thought would be of interest. Um, and a conversation developed with the editor. He kept coming back and just asking me a few more things about um, Gloria, as she, she's called, and, and then offered me a, a deal to write her life story, which I did. Um, so in my case, it really was sort of a bit of a, a fluky 
lucky coincidence that I just happened to know somebody. But I do think that is often the case, especially with journalists, that we all know somebody who might be doing something that can help. But I know other friends of mine who have got into ghostwriting, it has literally been, they have written a book a proposal, so the chapter breakdowns, um, a little bit of info for each chapter, why they feel that they can write the book, why they feel it'll do well, what market it falls into, and then they send it off either to agents or publishers. Um, and I think there are a few different ways you, you can do that. Um, but in my case, as I say, it was a conversation over email. That's really interesting because I've always assumed with ghostwriting, and obviously this assumption was completely wrong, that the publisher come to you and say, we want you to write about X person. I didn't realise that you find the story of the person and then pitch it to them that you're yeah. going to ghostwrite it. That's really interesting. And it is like being a freelance journalist in that sense. You're pitching a story um, and we are good at that. That's what we do. So we know what will make the best lines. We know what will make the best chapters. And we know how to sell things. So I think I, the publishers I've worked with, you know, tend to love working with journalists because we can pick out the best lines. And also we work to deadlines really well. And, you know, I've heard it be said time and time again from agents and publishers that they love journalists because they never miss a deadline. It's interesting what you say about pitching as well, because, um, you know, whenever we're talking about pitching for kind of, articles we're saying be brief get straight to the point that it, no detail like this is a conversation between you you don't want to send like a lengthy four-page email they're not going to read that whereas it sounds like your experience and our experience definitely with the proposal for freelancing for journalists was the amount of detail that was required in there it was a completely you know that was a different mag order of magnitude and that's why it took us so long to actually just put that initial proposal together i guess that's something to be aware of I'd say definitely. My Women of Steel proposal was probably 6,000 words, and I didn't actually do a sample chapter. So that was without a sample chapter, which of my average chapter size in Women of Steel is 5,000 words. But what I did do is I broke down each chapter into an incredible amount of detail and explained what I would go into. Um, and I, I did put a few dramatised scenes within the proposal. So I guess they got a sense of my style of writing. Whereas most, most um, publishing deals, you are expected to produce at least one sample chapter. So I think I've, I've been quite lucky with both my publishing deals. That I've not had to do it, but I have pitched other book ideas with sample chapters that, you know, just haven't been taken. So again, it is like pitching an article for a magazine or newspaper. You're taking a hit on the time you spend on it as to whether you'll get a deal or not at the end of it. Yeah, and I guess the other thing that people need to be aware of is that from the financial side of things, it really is, um, it's kind of a lot more risky that, you know, if you're selling a story, you kind of know you're going to get X amount for it. Um, but with a book, you, you know, you might negotiate in advance, but you then are getting royalties, which is kind of a tiny percentage of the cover price. Um, and that really you're not, you might see money from it, but it might take you 20 years before you get like any kind of return. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to kind of, Frank, from, from your experience, 
kind of the money side of it I mean has it always been you've done these things as passion projects or has no, it been I've them, no I've always done them for money have you uh, yeah the um it's well you know I mean you know that's our job you know our job is to earn money from writing um and there's more than one way to I mean you know if you take the example of the Celtic book, I mean, obviously I got paid for all of the features and stories I did about the story for both for the Herald and Scotland on Sunday. Then there was the uh, advance on the book when it was commercially published. Um, then there was, um, then of course you become, the, the, the great thing about doing a book is you become an expert on that subject. So um, I got, um, Almost as much. I, um, another glossy book on on the club was published, and they wanted a chapter on on the actual takeover deal and how that was done. So it's just a chapter on that, and I got a four-figure sum for that just for doing the chapter. In fact, what happened with that is they had got somebody else to write it and didn't like it, uh, and then they contacted me, so I did my version. And, and got paid for that. Um, and then after that, as I say, when we did the book, <clears throat> the, the ways we made money from it, um, we put it into the shops, mainly to give it credibility amongst the, the fans who, 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 who would buy it. We did it um, with Amazon because, because of its reach and anybody could buy it anywhere in the world. Um, and we also, sold sold di directly as well <coughs> excuse me the um <clears throat> so i was mailing out books to australia canada arizona ireland malta all kinds of places uh from people who wanted the book so that continued to sell for a while and then the ebook is still selling and i checked again on facebook there's i think in the last week there's been 35 likes for the book so people are still reading the book so it goes on and on. I mean, I should by now have done at least two more books on related subjects, given that experience um, of, of self-publishing. And it's something I intend to do. And I learned a tremendous amount from that. And be, as I say, I did it the wrong way around. So if, if I were doing it now, I would write an e-book with the costs are really low. Um, and I could try it out on the market. And then if... Uh, I see from that there is a demand. I could then do um, um, a hard copy book. And one of the things you can do as well, you can you can pre-sell. So before the hard copy book was available, we had the website and we had people pre-ordering the book. It, it didn't give them anything, but it meant that we knew that we had those orders already in before you know uh, we uh, we paid for the book to arrive. And obviously it can lead to other things. I don't think we envisaged at all when we had this initial conversation in 2017. Lily just went, do you want to write a book on freelance? I'm like, all right, sure. Had no <laughs> idea that we would be doing a podcast, having an online community, doing online yeah. training, webinars, all the things that have kind of come out of us realising that we had made ourselves experts in this. Yeah. Field, and books are just, I mean, books are just one of the media we use. I mean, you know, I mean, a bit like you said, I also run uh, courses in law for journalists uh, through the NUJ, and I've, I mean, I've taught those from Be from Berwick to Shetland. Um, 
And, you know, that pays quite well, plus it makes you an expert, you get invitations to speak on it, and so forth. So um, it's part I mean, of your branding. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, Michelle, I'm interested in um, kind of the writing process. And one of the things that, and maybe it's the type of book we were writing, but I was finding that I couldn't do too much of it at once. I thought I would need like this time, this protected time to go in and write and just get into it and be able to write it. And I actually found I couldn't do it that way. I, I could do kind of two or three hours and then I need to do something else. Maybe that's just because what it's what I'm used to, how I'm used to working. And um, I don't know how you found that because doing all teaching and all sorts of things that you're doing at the same time. I, um, that. Well, I'm, I'm quite methodical and um, anyone that knows me will know that I'm quite rigid in how I approach anything. So when I first started writing um, Women of Steel, I wasn't at the university at that point, so I was full-time freelancing. I did get paid quite a generous advance, so it meant I could take time out of freelancing maybe a day or so a week to dedicate to the Women of Steel. But I used that time to do the interviewing because I was obviously interviewing people in their 90s and 100s who really didn't want to do evening interviews. So I'd use the daytime that I allocated to do interviews but then I probably spent five nights a week writing to the point where, you know, I was always quite tired and it would, and I set myself a weekly target of how many words I needed to write each week. And I just wouldn't allow myself to stop that week till it was done. Um, because in my head, if I fell behind that, I couldn't catch up. And I, you know, when you've got six months to turn around a book and you've got a date that you have to submit, I needed that framework to know this week I've got to write 4,000 words and I'm not going to stop till it's done. Now, sometimes that's easier. You know, if I've done a really great interview and it flows really well, you can write a thousand words very, very fast. But sometimes when it's, you're thinking about the actual structure and where different interviews need to slot into the book and what parts of the interview. So several of my ladies will appear several times throughout the book. So I had to work out which segment of information I was putting in which chapter. So that could be quite time consuming. I'd have to make sure that I hadn't repeated myself and that I hadn't used part of an interview in two chapters. So sometimes the time element wasn't just the writing. It was the actually planning the structure and whereabouts different interviews and different sources of information were going to go. Yeah, I mean, I think we found that being really organised was the key, especially when there's two of us. And actually that was quite helpful because you could when you were having a I can't I hate this chapter I can't do it whatever you could bounce ideas off the other person you didn't have to just sit there um feeling stressed but also and it was usually when Lily had got further ahead than me it kind of gave me the push that I needed to <laughs> yeah I, mean, I was very lucky because my editor at Headline is brilliant and I I think I thanked her in the book for being like a fairy godmother magician type character she if I was struggling with something, a bit like when I was trying to work out, I wanted it to be chronological because that's how it works in my head. But I knew it couldn't all be chronological because of the weddings and the romances. She was very good at sort of coming in with ideas, how we break it up and that it would still flow really well. And especially in the editing process, once I'd actually submitted the manuscript, when we decided to move a few things around, she was excellent at, at moosing parts of information which is a heavy lifting as she called it um, but during the actual writing process I mean I cracked on by myself most of the time but there would be times where I was just struggling a little bit to know where to intercept things 
Um, but I think just you have to be organised and you can't leave a day to write 10,000 words because you're not going to do it. Yeah. Um, one of the other things I wondered as well is a bit like when you're starting out in freelancing, it's kind of knowing where to pitch and who to pitch to. And I just wonder about kind of where the kind of networks are in terms of finding publishers that kind of the right kind of publishers or publishers that are looking for certain kind of content that you might have ideas around. I know in some of the Facebook groups that we're on, there's some people that um, do a lot of writing for Pen and Sword because they they have a sort of formula and they, they ask for pictures on, on particular subjects. Um, there's other people that kind of ghostwrite um, biographies for you know sort of self-published biographies like a family member might want to want a biography and their family will pay someone to kind of do a book of their life but I just wondered if if, if either of you really have got any sort of suggestions on where people should be looking for those opportunities I mean Frank have you got any thoughts on kind of where do people start really Start in libraries and bookshops. Who is publishing the kind of thing that you want to write? Um, first of all, in fact, even before that, it's not just a matter of what you want to write. What do people want to read? You know, so find out if there's an audience for that, and then see who is publishing those kind of books. Um, and increasingly, as well, I've been doing a lot of research into self-publishing. Um, even after doing the Celtic book, because the, uh, it's fascinating now. With social media, you can build up your own network, you build up followers and so on. Um, and you, you build your name, and you can do that before you get the book off the ground. And you can also get feedback, you can do sample chapters, you can get, you know, you can put a sample chapter online and say, what do you think of this? Is this, you know, are, are you interested in that? You can actually get, uh, the known as beta readers, you know, BTA, um, who will do reviews for you uh, and they will tell you how things are going. So you can build up, you need to build up your own audience. And I think increasingly it's worth doing that because publishers are, are taking fewer and fewer risks. So if you can do an ebook, um, perhaps even a print book, which has followers, which is attracting readers, then you've got something to go to a publisher with and say, look, people are reading this, they like it, I think there's a market. Yeah, and how about you, Michelle? What, what would your advice be for kind of getting your foot in the door? I think my advice is, is I would completely agree with everything Frank says, especially the bit about building up your social media. So my author the page has got a huge amount of engagement on it I mean it's quite a niche topic so it, it does, it does um, in, in, uh, attract a lot of people who are interested in the steelworks and of course I interviewed lots of families so all their family members are on the Facebook page and it's, it increases engagement for me I, it will go straight back to me having an agent and that agent knowing his market very well so uh, my agent knew exactly who to pitch my book to. He knew exactly what I needed to do to get it in front of a publisher's eye. So 
because I had the middleman for Women of Steel, he did all that work for me and he did it incredibly well and he got me a brilliant deal. So, you know, you do pay a percentage for having an agent, but in my case, he's, he's more than earned his money because he, he knows those publishers inside out. He goes for lunch with them, he goes to coffee with them. Well, not right now, but used to. Um, so he knew exactly who would be interested in my book and he did a lot of research himself beforehand you know he mentioned it to publishers when he was out with them to see what sort of reception he was getting from it so i think if you go down the agent route that helps in that way but as frank said if you decide to self-publish it's knowing the market and it's knowing what sells and and having the confidence to go with it and there's always the chance as well, and I've heard this from several publishers, sometimes they really are taking a chance on your book and it's like pulling a needle out of a haystack, will it work or won't it? And then they get a great sale, great sales on a book that they weren't, they weren't convinced might work as well as it did. So I think even the publishers sometimes are taking risks and just praying it works. How do you actually go about getting an agent? I mean, do they have to want to take you on in the first place? Absolutely, yeah. They've got to believe in you. They've got to know that you can do what you're going to say you're going to do. So obviously they, for me, I spoke to several different agents before I chose the one that I felt I could work with because it's important that you're going to have quite a close relationship with them and they are the middleman between you and the publishers. So if you need a tricky conversation, so if you're, for example, negotiating your advance and you know you want more, you don't have to have that conversation. They will have it for you. Um, for me, I, was, I spoke to other friends who'd ghost written books or had books published and spoke to them about their agents and was introduced to them via email. And I just went through it as a process of elimination, really. I spoke to quite a few and I went with the one that I felt I could work with long term because I wanted it to be a long term relationship and something I could pitch, someone I could pitch future books to and who just genuinely believed that I was capable and would work hard for me to get the publishing deals. And, there's, you know, there are a lot of agents out there and some will be better than others. So do your research. Everything else comes back to do your research, doesn't it? Basically. Yeah. yeah. That's what we're supposed to be good at is, as, yeah. as journalists, you know, research. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, so if you have an interest in, in publishing, I hope that we've given you some food for thought here about what options are out there and how you might go about it because there are lots of different, as all our experiences have shown, there are lots of different ways of doing this cause, and lots of types of books that um, you could write yeah and obviously lots of different processes in terms of writing as you know Frank's saying he can kind of knock a book out in a in a month and Emma and I kind of procrastinated for over a year in writing ours but um, yeah we hope this has been uh, really helpful for everyone it's been some really interesting useful advice there yeah thank you um, to both our guests that's fantastic um, if you have any queries feedback or ideas even for future episodes you can email us at freelancingforjournalists at gmail.com um, and on twitter we are at freelancing for yeah you can also follow me at lily canter and i'm at emma journo and just to mention that we have a Kofi coffee however you pronounce it um funding page so if you'd like to buy us a virtual cup of tea to help support the podcast 
um, then please click on our coffee link. It's our pin post on Twitter and it's also on our Freelancing for Journalists uh, podcast website. And don't forget to join our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community where there are lots more tips and advice as well as a 20% discount code for our book. Um, so yeah, next week we are we will be talking about mental health and well-being for freelancers, which is not something we've really touched on before, so I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah, that should be a good one. But until then, we're going to sign off now and say goodbye for now. Bye.